0: God has insisted that that church will continue to grow, it will continue to thrive, and uh, so as we look at these concepts of the kingdom of God we realize that God has graciously given us an authority, He's put His blessing upon our lives, He's promised His power to continue to enhance that kingdom and to, to build His church. Uh, we're going to look at uh, another aspect of the kingdom of God as we look into Luke chapter 22. So allow me to read verses 24 uh, through 33 to get us started and then we will look at not only the priority of letting our lives be centered in the midst of this movement Jesus created but having a heart that truly wants to serve God's purpose and plan. Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 24, and we'll read down through 33. Now also a dispute arose among them, that is the disciples, as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles, they lorded over them, and those who exercise authority over them, they call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves." You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, 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 Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled by the reality that you have accomplished so much for us, and yet you've allowed the potential of your kingdom and the advancement of your church to be within the hands of your people. We pray that not only we recognize the blessing that you've imparted to us, but might we be certainly moved by the responsibility to take a stand, to recognize the beauty of what you've done in our lives. You can do that in the lives of others. We pray, God, as we prioritize our lives and allow the richness of what Easter is all about, we pray, God, that you would choose to be a blessing in us, so that it might flow through us. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Allow me to read verse uh, 20 and 21, those verses before there. Now in the same way after the supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me Is with mine on the table. It was the night in which Jesus was betrayed that he had, uh, knowing what was going to happen, he celebrated what is known as the Last Supper. And in the midst of this sacred moment, we find that Judas had already determined to be the betrayer. And we find in these same scriptures that surround it, that Peter had already determined to be the bold one. He would be the one that would do whatever, all for the name of Jesus. Now Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to be offered up as the Lamb of God, which would take away the sins of the world. And so it is rather clear that Jesus knew everything about all the details that were going to take place. And surely, without a doubt, Jesus' mind and heart were troubled and consumed by his purpose and calling on what he needed to do. And yet, meanwhile, Jesus carries a deeper burden for his disciples. He wrestles in prayer, yet focused upon what his disciples needed to become. He knew the awfulness that would take place within the minds and the torment of evil that would press upon them. And yet, the kingdom of God was what this was all about. Now we can see that from these scriptures, that as Jesus shares these final sacred moments together with His chosen disciples, that His disciples seem to be thinking entirely in a different direction. And so you notice the the flavoring of the teachings about the emphasis upon the kingdom, and this movement of God's people and what they were called to do and what they ought to be, his disciples begin to think about which of them is the greatest. It's strange to think at such a sacred moment and such of the midst of all that was going on and what was about to take place that his disciples are still thinking one thing, Jesus is burdened for another thing. We have Judas on the one hand, He's already got something going in his head and Peter has something else entirely. And yet because of the love of Jesus Christ and his commitment to the church, he does what is necessary to bring together out of all the mixture of all the the ideas and thoughts racing through to bring his disciples to the place that once this awful period of three days is over, I can once again rebuild and restore these people. You and I recognize that in the midst of our journey and faith, and as much as we know all the right answers, it doesn't necessarily make it easier to keep our hearts in the right place. As much as we know what we ought to do, it doesn't necessarily make it natural or automatic to accomplish the things that Jesus intended to fulfill in us and through us. It's constantly a battle to keep ourselves in the forefront of what the kingdom of God is truly all about and what God wants to accomplish in and through His people. It may be difficult for us to grasp how this concept of greatness could even begin to be working through the minds of His disciples, especially at a sacred time like this. And yet, if our purpose and intent is not upon the things that Jesus truly intends it to be, you and I, at best, will be worrying about which of us are the greatest. It seems almost understandable that without keeping ourselves in the forefront of what the business is of the king, then inevitably we might find ourselves competing. We might find ourselves uh, trying to outdo or outsmart or outspeak or whatever it may be. When the mission is lost, then the mess becomes what seemingly could be most important. Yet when we consider the potential of the kingdom of God and the promises that Jesus gave us and how that He had handed His own disciples the keys to the kingdom of God, and He speaks rather openly about the po- potential power that would happen through the pouring out of His Holy Spirit, that no doubt, if our hearts are not in the right place, we're going to get our hands in the wrong place what we need to see about the kingdom of god and understand is not only as we looked at last week that it needs to consciously and continuously be placed in the forefront of our minds and hearts that god's kingdom is important to me Until we decide how to establish priorities, I think we are well aware that whatever you go, the, the journey you take in life, or whatever you put your hand to, or whatever you're involved in, it is easy to become caught up in the kingdom of this world and all the necessities and all the demands of life, and we'll find ourselves constantly drawn towards the things that really don't go into eternity. And so we choose to establish a priority in our lives. We choose to establish it as a fundamental uh, measuring device of how we are walking with God is what we are doing for His glory and His honor. The point we need to consider this morning is that the kingdom of God was born and the church was uh, established through men and women who believed in greatness. It's probably one of the hardest concepts to begin to grasp because we become somewhat conditioned to believe that greatness is a bad word, that greatness is something that we shouldn't be reaching for or striving for, and yet Jesus is attempting to teach. There's a greatness that belongs to the church. It's what established its foundation. It's what marks its course. It's what set the tone, but there's also a greatness that can get us in a lot of trouble. And what we want to consider this morning as we look into the scriptures is that which is true and genuine and try to begin to uh, allow God to search our hearts and to, to guard our minds and to keep on the forefront the things that truly matter, the things that will not only shape our lives, but the potential things that allow this kingdom of God be the intended purpose in which God has truly designed it to be. There's a concept about life. When we think about the greatness or the concept of greatness in a healthy sense, we need to realize that that greatness is not so much in the things you and I do, but it's who we are. And these are the things that Jesus taught, and we're not going to try to spend too much time trying to explain that concept of greatness, but to consider the thought that sets the tone for people who reach or pursue greatness is they always have had and always will have deep convictions and high values. And that's important for us to see that the scripture communicates to us that greatness is not so much how much noise you can make or how many waves you can start to begin. It's a matter of understanding the convictions that drive you forward, that indeed these are what is the measure of greatness. Those core values in our lives, those things that, that define us, they shape us, that all the decisions that you and I make on a day-by-day basis are filtered through your convictions and your values. And as we try to develop those, those convictions and values in a biblical sense, we realize that it may indeed stretch us to some extent, but it's important to know That the kingdom of God is a movement of people who not simply shaped the world, but they had a passion that inwardly their relationship with God and how that relationship had translated into their everyday living, that is what turned the world upside down. Those convictions and values. I don't know whether you've ever taken the time to think about what is important to you. Have you ever really thought about and processed what some of your deep convictions really are? Have you really looked at and taken some kind of inventory about the values you hold dear and the principles that make you tick, that make you or predetermine how you make decisions and what you set in priorities in life? I realize that sometimes it might seem strange to think about that. We just assume that our convictions are the way they ought to be. Or that somehow when we come to faith, they're just automatically imparted within us. As we look into the scriptures and we see the patterns of these great men and women who shaped the world, we realize that many of those convictions are rather similar and those values are commonly laid upon their hearts. And that's our intent this morning, is to begin by humbly asking ourselves, Whether or not our convictions are creating passion, and whether our passion is truly to be great, not simply to make a name for ourselves, but to be a servant that reaches this world. We think about priorities, we think about the purpose in which Jesus came, and the ultimate goal of establishing uh, um, His his personal presence in each and every one of our own hearts. The strategy, the convictions is what drives you or keeps us from settling down. It causes an uneasiness that begins to catapult us and move us to keep on doing the things that Jesus had called us to do. When I, I believe um, it's rather clear to us that, that great men and women, that is those who made a positive difference in the world, particularly uh, pertaining to the church, have always had strong convictions and unchangeable values, and that's something that we need to consider: is the kind of convictions we have. Because if we have a kind of conviction that keeps us from moving forward, we need to go back and relook at what those convictions truly are. If we have values that seem to diminish our influence or impact upon the world, we need to look at those and bring those uh, indeed before the Lord. Our convictions and values will keep us from sitting still. But if we acknowledge the importance of the kind of passion that will keep us moving, and the enthusiasm that will stir us to a, a, a discontentment with the way our world is, then that is the hope that you and I can move from wherever we're at wherever we ought to be. And that's some things we want to look at. Some of the things that became convictions or values that became rather evident in the early church and and possibly even in your own life for various seasons in life or maybe you've been part of of ministries throughout uh, your years of following the Lord that you saw firsthand or you looked in the scriptures and saw firsthand the kinds of things that truly uh, bring about a kind of passion that really connects with the world, then you obviously can relate to some of these. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter two. Acts chapter two. I want to look at verses forty-six and forty-seven. Acts chapter two, verses forty-six and forty-seven. Now every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, they broke bread in their homes, and they ate with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We see that uh, genuine fellowship was a key component among these people, and they not only liked most likely being together, they knew that one of the things that Jesus had laid out to His disciples and communicated all through His teachings is the importance of agreement, the importance of being together, the importance of, of strategizing the world out there and our own lives on a day-by-day course. We know the beauty of being together, particularly not simply for fellowship for donuts, but it's fellowship for faith that makes uh, the the movement to the kingdom of God. It's good that you and I might eat together, but it's also good in you that you and I feast together on certain components that would typically be identified as fellowship. What's probably so important is there was a conviction they needed to be together. It's one thing to pick and choose what we get together for. It's one thing to say, I like this event or I don't like that event. It's one thing to live in a sense where I wonder what I might benefit from this activity or this gathering or whatever it is. It's another thing to have a conviction that you and I have been brought together by the grace of God for a purpose of agreement. When two or three gather together in my name, there I am in the midst. It's a principle of the kingdom. And one thing that will, will help us clearly see whether it's a conviction or a convenience is how we respond when the pastor wants to stay home. <laughs> There's times in life that we all face, those moments when you got to pick and choose what you're going to do and where you're going to go and how you're going to involve. It's another to have a conviction of the necessity, the urgency that this is a key component to reaching the world around us. And so we can look at numerous scriptures that illustrate this concept of them being together in the beauty of that commonness, but it never happens automatically. It comes with conviction. I must continue to commit to the cause for the purpose of the kingdom of God. And therefore, it flavored not only the way they worshiped, it flavored the way they prayed. It not only flavored the way they prayed, but it certainly affected the way they studied the Bible. There's all these things fit together, and that's what makes up the concept of fellowship, It's this longing to be together and talk about these things. Another way that we can evaluate our real convictions is when people really talk about how they can lead someone to Christ and the things they could teach them and the principles they could show them, whether or not that generates passion in your heart. To be fascinated with the things that people said to someone else and how their life was shaped and how their life was formed and how their life was changed and the scriptures that made a difference and the impact of how that took place. To tell your testimony and your story, it should create passion. This is where I was. This is what happened. This is where I'm at now, and this is where I'm going. It's a kind of of, of continual flow of energy that comes through that concept of fellowship. Oh, to be together with the purpose of praying for those that have not come to faith. The purpose of studying the scriptures because they bring excitement and richness, they give depth, they give clarity, they give focus. One thing about convictions is the opposite sometimes makes it difficult for Christians. You want so bad maybe to share about your faith, you want to talk about the scriptures that change your life, and somebody wants to change the subject. You see, when it's your value, it's your beliefs, it's your convictions, it not only gives you energy when people say, I want to hear your story, I want to know what changes your life. I want to know how I can talk to my friend who's going through this situation, this circumstance. They believe this and they hold to these values. What is it that I could say to them? What is it I could give them? How can I show them how to experience the beauty of what this life is about? And somebody switches the channel. You see, when it's your conviction, it'll both irritate us and energize us. And that's something you and I need to work through in those concepts and principles of love. But the kingdom is about advancement. The kingdom is about the establishment of the church. The kingdom is about helping each and every one of us experience the richness of what fellowship is about with a clear objective in mind. It's always a lot more fun to slow down and not worry about the process and and not get too excited about the advancement. But the early church was set with a passion and commitment to accomplish a mission. Paul gets to the end of his life. He really wasn't serving God that long. He says, I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I have nowhere else to go. So his plan was to go to Rome And to go to Spain. Great men, greatness that comes through the blessing of Christ is that we begin to believe that there's a boundary to reach, there's a place to go, there's a passion to hold. And typically it happens within the setting of fellowship that it energizes us to humbly say, Lord, what can we do and where can we go and how can we get there? And so these things often tie together. We can look at a lot of scriptures, but there was a kind of passion and conviction that there's a purpose for our gathering, and that is to experience this blessing and favor of God upon the life of us as believers, and to allow that renewal experience to drive us out into the world and touch the hearts and lives of other people. Now let's turn to Acts chapter 6, or I'm sorry, chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. Now, this is a strange one to try to, to address, but I believe it's still important. <clears throat> we have a tendency, um, as I mentioned before, and, and you probably, you know, maybe heard other people talk about it. In America, we have a pretty much a very independent kind of thinking, and it affects not only the way we conduct ourselves and the way we, we depend and interact with other people, but we really have a high emphasis on this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me show you that in the early church that, that as much as a person must humbly choose for themselves a relationship with Christ, that's not really the focus of the kingdom mentality. Acts chapter 10, verse 23 and 4. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guest. And the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, in verse 24, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and his close friends. One thing about the kingdom movement, one thing about the kingdom mentality, is that it goes for the network system. It goes for the development of of connectedness and, and how people have a natural connection with other people. And that connectedness is what allows the gospel to expand. We have a tendency possibly to try to work hard at getting everybody into one building, which is not really what the early church did. The early church was anticipating how each and every one of us can be qualified to lead others to faith, each and every one of us can learn how to become disciple and disciple makers, that each and every one of us might be able to do the work uh, one-on-one and two-on-two and three-on-three and four-on-four, and the movement is what set the tone for the world. And what we recognize in the American culture is there's a high priority of getting people here rather than going out there. It's important to recognize the beauty, the value of the sending forth concept because the kingdom of God is about reaching the world with the message of Jesus Christ. It's important to realize that we see often the patterns when people are coming to faith It was not only them, but it is their whole household, and it was the concept. It was a conviction. It was a passion in them that as they came to faith, they would naturally uh, begin to embrace that concept of the network, not only in the community, but also within their family and friends. Let's look at Acts chapter 4 now. Acts chapter 4, we'll pick up at verse uh, 17 and read, Down through 21. As was mentioned before, we are well aware that the early church, though it was expanding fast and though God was blessing his people and people were coming to faith, there was also a spirit of opposition. Persecution was on the the growth and opposition was seemingly a common experience that is all through that early church experience. But what we want to see is not so much why there was opposition and persecution, or or why there is not so much opposition or persecution today, but one thing that is clear is whether or not the opposition came, the kingdom was still a priority. Acts chapter 4, 17 through 21. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen or heard. After further threats they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. I simply just mention there as I stop is that obstacles and resistance were were a typical part of the early church and yet there was seemingly a more greater concern for the kingdom than what inconvenience it may make. Now, we have become rather accustomed in our culture and our world to be more concerned about doing it in a nice, acceptable way. Wouldn't you like to simply just go to everybody that wants to hear you? Well, of course we would want to share our faith with people that are highly receptive to that, and yet the the aspect of the agreement and the fellowship is to encourage us to be praying for those breakthroughs and praying for those opportunities, but it doesn't determine whether or not we're going to keep a kingdom mindset. I realize that we live in a world that is is rather different in in one primary sense, that somebody has already heard a lot of probably what you're going to talk about. And so we are trying to to reach a a post-Christian world in which most of the people have already become attuned to the the gospel message. They've already pretty much decided whether they want to believe or not believe. They've decided whether they want to receive or embrace. But it should not alter the fact that we go back again to the purpose of fellowship, is to tap into the promises and power of God so that we might continue to make impact. That the purpose that we worship is that the name of Jesus gets lifted up, and he said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. We, we live within the, the concept that our gathering has an intention of allowing us to experience the richness of his impartation so we might go and be commissioned for the world around us. The Keeping and maintaining uh, that kingdom concept is really what the purpose and intent of Christ was. I realize it gets difficult when we kind of keep knocking on people's hearts. We keep trying to demonstrate the grace of God. We keep pointing people in this direction. And some people respond in some sense positively, and many people do really don't seem to want to hear it. But it doesn't change a kingdom passion. The question is, do we have passion to keep going? Do we have convictions and values that keep us setting our foot forward? Is that truly what we experience in our lives? In Acts chapter 15, now let's turn there. Acts chapter 15. We want to look at verses five and uh, through eleven. I realize that in the Christian community, it'd be nice if we could just get on to the mission. (laughs) But as you and I are well aware that you and I have family matters, and we have church matters, and we have people matters, and wherever we go in life, there's uh, misunderstandings, and there's disagreements, and there's issues that come up. And they come up in all kinds of forms and fashions. And if, if, if it was simply about mission, it would be one thing to kind of keep the passion level going. But if there's anything that will take away the life or the vibrancy of every one of us is these little issues. Now, here's a little issue that became a big issue, but it's still an issue. And you and I need to realize that the early church was committed to resolving those issues. Acts chapter 15, we look in verse 5 and go down through 11. Now some of them note the believers, believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. They stood up and said the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. So the apostles and the elders they met to consider this question. After much discussion Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart, showed that He accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for He purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you uh, try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. A movement of kingdom people have to recognize that the beauty of some things will always take priority over others. And the way that those priorities are established is there's a dependency on the Holy Spirit working through the issues to bring a refinement to the beauty and direction of the church. And that is often difficult. Old, I realize because we can't go to Jerusalem and knock on the door of the recognized elders and say we have a question. But still it is the important thing to realize. A kingdom-minded church has to work through the things and call the principles or the values that are important, important. And to recognize that some things fall in the category of tradition, such as circumcision, And even though some could debate and say, well, it's in God's law, they had to work through these and distinguish between the things that are no longer a priority to establish the movement and the kingdom of God. It's difficult, even in our generation, to talk about what maturity really looks like, to describe it, to define it, to strategize the things we need to know, and the heart issues that need to be changed. It's very difficult to come to specifics and details about what this commitment to God truly looks like. But somehow those things ought to be worked through, encouraged, so that the kingdom of God, the purpose of Jesus, the priorities that He established. I'll read... uh, Starting with 21 and go down through 23. Now they preached the good news in the city and they won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas then appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer, And fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. The early church not only had a distinctive conviction that there were ways that you and I ought to live, a quality of life, and a commitment to certain truths. They were devoted to searching the scriptures, studying them, so that they all could have this foundation of truth. They also had a high priority on how to take those truths and implement them into daily, everyday living. And so the scriptures give us many specific details of how to relate to people, whether it's in our workplace or in our home. These scriptures become the fabric of the development of what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Christ in a commitment and relationship to Him. But the point we look here is the concept of even the elders, the appointment of men that are recognized, men that stand above. And again, sometimes that might strike us a little strange or might seem a little dated. But turn with me as we look into the book of Titus because it's important to understand that the ministry that propels forward, that the establishment of the church and the movement of the impact of a church and community is highly dependent on the cream of the crop rising up and saying, I will take a stand to be a genuine leader in this community and in the church. The appointment of elders was not simply to be taken by a popular vote. It was to be men that are recognized as leaders, as individuals who live in a way that they are recognized and valued. It seems to be uh, something that has lost its impact in our our culture and generation. But turn with me to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Now the reason I left you in Crete, this is Paul writing to Titus, was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer, is a, that's a term used interchangeably for elder, is entrusted with God's work, He must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. The point we ought to humbly consider is most of us, no doubt, will say, uh oh, who can ever be an elder? But the early church had a commitment. We'll pray that it happens. They had a kind of faith that would not accept that everybody is simply just saved by grace. But the movement of the church and the impact was a quality of individuals that set the tone for the impact of the church. If we tell ourselves that this is not important, as long as we do the things we're supposed to do and keep busy trying to tell people about Jesus, then we're questioning or quenching the Holy Spirit's work. We might pray for His power to drop upon us, to cause us to influence, but at the same time, we may not want the holiness to transform our lives. In order for a movement, a church, the kingdom to advance, we must understand that God allows His blessing, His favor, His influence to, to rest upon us as we are both faithful and willing to serve and be diligent. I trust there may be even some men here today to say, I'm the last person that feels qualified to be considered blameless, but that's my commitment. The church moves when it has conviction, it has passion, to excel above what seems to be the common tone of the generation, that we choose to humbly say by God's grace, God, you change me, you fill me so that I can take a stand. We must recognize the beauty and the richness of God's blessing and God's plan and God's purpose. Or we can simply step to the side and say, why get that excited? I'm okay. Other people might be okay. We simply say the conviction. One of the convictions I certainly have is I want to look in what the scriptures have to say and guard what my thoughts, my opinions, my ideas may be. God's purpose and plan is that some of us as men may step up and say, I'm willing. I'm convinced the only way that happens is a high level of accountability and a high level of interactive fellowship, praying for each other, pleading for the grace of God to shape us so we might rise to a greater occasion and be more willing or faithful and prepared to be used for the cause of God of Jesus Christ. One final thought we have when we think about the impact of the kingdom of God is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6. There's a lot of scriptures that we could talk about faith and its importance. The early church was a people that believed in faith. They had great confidence that not only God would care for their needs, but their concept of faith was that their eye would be on Jesus. Sometimes we get faith upside down. We get more about trying to think about what we would like or to experience. But note with me in verse uh, uh, 6 in chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. It's a very fundamental and almost a, a, an a, a unwritten statement all through scriptures that faith really matters. And important to get experience, the passion is that the faith that we exercise and the faith that we believe in and the faith that we stand upon is the faith that Jesus taught. And that's what we're identifying. Passion cannot remain passion if it's simply just assuming that that can be used as a blanket coverage on anything and everything. But notice, particularly as it's explained a little bit more when we get down to verse 13 through 16, all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them. They welcomed them from a distance And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Notice in verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them faith as we think in terms of uh, the kingdom of God is that the kingdom really isn't going to happen in its fullness until the king returns. And so the early church had a high anticipation and expectation that the kingdom is finally going to come. What's strange is that somehow we may have grasped the concept or bought into the concept that the kingdom is simply now. And so we look at all of the promises and we get confused because we think we want them all now. We are building our lives on the now. And it's important to know that the the task or the calling is that Jesus is about to return. And no doubt we can see the handwriting on the wall, but the early church was not trying to build its castle here. They were trying to get people ready for the kingdom to truly come in its fullness. And so the message was broadcasted. The urgency was going. The necessity of letting people know the king is about to return. The kingdom is coming, and it will be established. And the urgency is not so much in what we might accomplish now. It's who God has called us to be because the king is about to return. The kingdom of God is both now and in the future. But the beauty of the kingdom that we are advancing now is preparation for the one to come. We have conviction and passion that rises within us, and we know it because we can feel it in our hearts that the job's not finished yet, the task is not over. We are sent with a message and we are promised the power, the blessings. We've been given the keys to the kingdom. And I trust that we might be able to humbly examine our hearts and see, is this passion that God has intended still burning within our hearts? Is that passion still at work doing its great thing? It's easy to become complacent. It's almost something that happens to the best of us unless we find the secret of how that fire gets rekindled once again we get back to the task of going into all the world and making disciples father we are challenged as we think in these terms because it's it's easy to get caught up in things we get busy we get involved we get overwhelmed we pray That whatever you intended for us, Lord, we not only have you and your kingdom as a priority, but we might live in a way that our passions rise and our values also are of priority. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.